I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. And it's worth pointing out that this sort of mission creep can override other priorities. For example, take the Paranoid Strain home base, the lovely Bay Area. I don't think it will come as a shock to any of you, regardless of your political persuasion, to learn that the various municipalities around these parts are not big fans of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Essentially, all of the big players, San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, etc., have declared themselves sanctuary cities meaning that their local laws are designed to protect undocumented immigrants in spite of, or even in the face of, applicable federal or state statutes. So normally this would mean that local police forces would refuse to cooperate with ICE raids. Unsurprisingly, this was especially true while Trump was in office, as deep blue cities like the ones around here tended to interpret any action by his administration as prima facie bad. Which, to be fair to them, many actions were. Probably most of them, actually. So it was kind of surprising back in 2017 when an ICE operation in Oakland was supported by a number of Oakland police units to the dismay of local officials. When ICE agents conducted a raid in Oakland back in August, Oakland police officers were there doing traffic control. This evening, Oakland's Privacy Advisory Commission met to discuss whether that was a violation of OPD's policy against helping ICE. The chief has again harmed this family by falsely claiming that one member was criminally charged. Not even ISIS stated that. Commission Chairman Brian Hofer accuses the police chief of a series of misleading statements after the raid, including this one at a public meeting last month. Only one person has been charged with a crime, and there is not a deportation matter in this case. There is not a deportation matter in this case. This statement by the chief was false on September 6th and remains false today. Hofer says there is, in fact, a man in ICE custody who is still facing deportation. The chief did not appear at the hearing, but said a lieutenant who insists police were simply responding to a courtesy call by ICE and only blocked traffic. It turns out, though, that the reason that the cops had decided they should make an exception to their normal no-ICE support rule was because ICE officials informed the Oakland police chief's office that this would be a raid targeting human trafficking which, at least by the time the OPD was asked to defend its actions, had, as you might expect by now, morphed into a sex trafficking investigation involving minors. 
Of course, it turned out the incursion was just a standard-issue sort of immigration raid. But as we've been discussing, that human trafficking label, especially with a sex chaser, can open a lot of doors, whether the terms are actually warranted for the event in question or not. The pratfalls and misinformation cavalcade continued. The police chief was forced to retract the sex and minors part of the initial press release. But then nearly a year later in July of 2018, and apparently obeying the mysterious algorithm that governs all of our lives and dictates what goes viral when, President Trump retweeted a video that captured the protesters who were opposing the ICE raid back in August of 17. This was supposed to be an example of the feckless lawlessness of the loony left, and sure enough, right-wing outlets immediately began posting the link under screaming headlines like, Come on! Clueless leftists protest ICE officials as they try to bust up a child sex trafficking ring. Hooray for calm, dispassionate reporting. Right? And of course, these protesters couldn't have even known about the, as it turns out, false allegations about child sex trafficking at the time of the raid and protest. But even that's not the point. The point is, the ICE agents themselves hadn't suggested even a hint of child sex trafficking when they were talking to Oakland officials about the raid. That was an ex post facto defense falsely issued by the OPD, covering its ass after the fact. Of course, ICE deliberately used the provocative human trafficking term, trying to sway local officials to support its action, which turned out to be just another raid aimed at deporting undocumented immigrants, which is precisely the kind of thing that the local ordinances were designed to oppose. But it's also reasonable to think, given the other material we've covered here, that a sort of automatic association of the term human trafficking with child sex exploitation might have happened unconsciously in the minds of officials who eventually decided OPD would support the raid. Of course, the Oakland police's misstatement was quickly retracted. But then, as we saw, an even more gratuitous version of the story popped up nearly a year later as undeniable proof that left-wingers are so opposed to immigration enforcement that they are essentially guilty by association of harboring kitty diddlers. And that allegation got repeated by semi-respectable, if admittedly partisan, sources like National Review, not just BizPack Review, the source we quoted, which bills itself as breaking news and analysis unfiltered by the liberal bias that has eroded the media's credibility. And all this happened, at least partially, because the terms human trafficking, sex trafficking, and sex trafficking involving minors have become so blurred by motivated usage and because people are therefore worried about the imaginary problem of truckloads of toddlers being drop-shipped to sanctuary cities all over the states run by Democrats, they can be turned out by Hillary Clinton's email server because the Illuminati or something. And so, officials can use this confusion and the public's assumptions about rampant child sex trafficking to justify whatever they want. And even super-sensitive left-wing anti-ICE cities and organizations can be swept up in the mania to protect children from this mostly imaginary scourge. But, of course, it gets worse when we get to the moral panic. As Debbie and many others have been at pains to point out, the general confusion over this topic has been leveraged by a variety of interest groups for their own ends. In the case of well-intentioned NGOs and other organizations, it's an imperfect way of shining a spotlight on real problems adjacent to the one that they're kind of leading people to think might be bigger than it actually is. For others, it's a way of covering up the inhumanity of their preferred policies by making them appear to be humanitarian. I get the feeling that our 45th president is again going to be a factor at this point. Again, your guesses are on point today, Dana. Yes, the Trump administration, in its quest to find plausible reasons to send asylum seekers back to their countries of origin, 
further elided the distinctions between smuggling immigrants across the border because they paid you to do so and human trafficking, which again to most people sounds more like kidnapping and holding people against their will. Quoting a piece from The Appeal, again co-authored by the inescapable Ms. Nathan, the justification started like this. At the border, the government started DNA testing selected groups of immigrants and found that the groups were frequently not related to each other. Thus, the authorities suggested, the children among those groups were clearly victims being trafficked by strangers, quite possibly for sex. Of course, given a moment's thought, it's not surprising that non-families, including adults and children, would be grouping up and traveling north together. Many of these kids' parents are already in the U.S., having established themselves in the country before summoning children who may not have been old enough to cross when the parent did originally. So they would naturally ask people they knew from the local community whether they were related to their kids or not, to bring their children north with them, helping to ensure the children's safety during the dangerous journey. But this attitude of conflating largely voluntary migrants being shepherded across the border by so-called coyotes, with the presumption that hordes of innocents are being duct-taped into vans and dragged into the U.S. as prostitutes, has led to some truly horrible outcomes. For example, this story from the aforementioned piece, quote, in 2017, a 16-year-old mother and her boyfriend, also a teenager, were driving the main streets of Rio Grande City, a small town in South Texas that abuts the Mexico border. The girl was a student at a local public school. The boyfriend was a waiter at a local chain restaurant. Also in the car was her 11-month-old baby boy. The state trooper who stopped them wrote a ticket because the baby was not in a car seat. He then called Border Patrol, who determined that the teen girl was undocumented. The Border Patrol agent apprehended her, separated her from her baby, and would not allow the father to keep his child. It was weeks before the girl's mother was able to go to court and recover the baby. The rationale for the separation, according to DPS records, was Border Patrol investigating possible sex trafficking of a minor. And again, this is a moral panic that the public totally buys into. A group of researchers used a widely discredited figure for the number of children supposedly being trafficked in the U.S., that number is 300,000. It's based on faulty and 30-year-old data, has been repudiated by the original researchers, and is probably off by more than a factor of 10. Yes, but that's the number the researchers used in a survey when they asked U.S. adults if they thought the real number was above or below that figure. Half of respondents said they thought the real figure was higher. A third said much higher. Again. Just like the original panic, we're not saying there's no problem here. Even one person forced to labor sexual or otherwise anywhere in the world is a crime against humanity, and we should do everything in our power to reduce and eliminate this sort of crime from the world. But accepting bizarre overestimates and redefinitions can not only distort the priorities of public policy, they can convince a whole society that they're in the midst of a crisis that doesn't even exist. And that can keep us from addressing the very real problems that should receive our attention, our resources, and our focus. Is it finally time to get up to date on the actual QAnon? Soon, dear Dana. But before we finally recap the bizarre ongoing antics of that cult, we have one more antecedent we want to examine. And that's how a number of prominent trends in the 90s, on reflection, seem to anticipate 
the rise of QAnon. And if I had a backseat view of the satanic panic as a child, I was solidly in the driver's seat for this period, which spanned my late teens to my mid-twenties. And so, younger listeners, however much you may have heard about the 90s being a time of comparative peace and calm in the light of our 21st century upheavals, I'm here to tell you there was plenty of crazy shit going around, much of which will, on reflection, sound pretty familiar. Let's start with the factor that was arguably behind much of the other madness, the impending millennium. See, kids, the year 2000 was a very different looking number than 1919 whatever. The first digit was a two. Shocking. And there had never before been a year 20 anything. So some of the most excitable and less than securely hinged people in the 1990s society started viewing this completely arbitrary change of one artificially constructed time marking year number to another one as having some sort of cosmic, world impactful significance. Yeah, it's true. And we should briefly touch on why we count time the way we do. As most people growing up in the West would know, the original rationale for dividing time into BC and AD. That is, before Christ or Anno Domine, year of our Lord, to translate the Latin. Which are the periods that are now more frequently known as BCE and CE, or before Common Era and Common Era, respectively. The original names were because everybody in Europe, whose calendars eventually gained near-universal acceptance in the modern era for a variety of reasons. Many of those reasons involved guns leveled at the heads of people who were reluctant to adopt European preferences, naturally. Indeed, but the point is, the European calendar that nearly everyone uses now is supposedly based on the birth year of one Jesus H. Christ, a popular religious figure. Now, to be fair to those 1990s-era excitables who thought the fact that we were passing the arbitrary threshold a thousand years past the preceding arbitrary threshold was a big deal, the same thing happened a thousand years before. Or did it? Well? Oh yeah, I guess I have to answer my rhetorical question. According to an interesting New York Times story from 1999, most historians doubt that there was much hubbub about the end of the world leading up to the dawning of the second millennium in the year 1000. And there's a good reason for that. Namely, that low levels of literacy, the lack of printed materials like newspapers, and the general lack of agreement on what calendar people were even using, or, for those using the same calendar, agreement on what day the year ended up, as some uses Christmas and some use January 1st, meant that most people wouldn't even have been aware of the millennium's passing when it happened. Right. Now, there are historians who argue that there was, in fact, a major panic throughout Christendom and that the church authorities of the era worked to erase the phenomenon from the record because they were embarrassed that their predictions that the world was going to end didn't come to pass. But that's a minority view, and it doesn't seem to have a lot of documentary support. Duh, Jesuit. Because those year-thousand authorities' conspiracy plan worked. You fucking sheeple. Of course. How could I have been so blind? And it does appear that there was panic in some more literate and intensely religious areas. For example, the then-Pope celebrated a midnight mass in St. Peter's in Rome, attended by quivering congregants expecting the end of the world that night. But just because there probably wasn't a general panic before the year 1000 doesn't mean there wasn't widespread panic before some other years, at least among those who knew what day and year it was supposed to be at any given time. As the article we cited above notes, people living during the medieval period were under constant threat from everything from regular waves of armed invaders to famines to plagues, so they pretty much constantly expected the end, if not of the world, then certainly their world. 
Also, there were definitely, no question, some other dates that had significant portions of the European and eventually U.S.-Canadian population expecting the fiery ruin of all they have known as reality. Anyway, there were plenty of dates where people expected that to happen scattered over the past 2,000 years, including but not limited to the year 1284 when the then-Pope predicted Christ would return. Why the odd number? Because it was 666 years after the founding of Islam, which said Pope, Innocent III, saw as the forces of Antichrist. Most of you know the Christian significance of the number 666, but in case you don't, we'll get to it shortly. Then there's 1523, when a group of English astrologers predicted a global flood, since the planets were aligned in the watery sign of Pisces. Science! Londoners during the subsequent century were also assured that the cursed year 1666, which includes that horrible anti-Christian number within it, would signal the end of the world. And many no doubt believed, as it was a pretty tumultuous year, a significant plague killed thousands, only to be topped by the Great Fire of London, which laid waste to most of the city. The combination must have looked like a vision of the apocalypse, certainly. And then, of course, there are more modern predictions of the end times, which seem to crop up more and more often as our telecommunications technology becomes ever more frictionless. Some of our more notable homegrown religious sects in the United States, including the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Mormons, had predictions of the impending apocalypse at or near the center of their theologies in their early days. Each has since cut down on the practice of calling specific dates for the Lord's return like some sort of celestial Babe Ruth homer, but all continue to expect Armageddon to come in a vague, soon time frame. And then there's this guy. The doomsday clock has now been moved up one more minute, from four minutes to midnight, to now only three minutes to midnight. That comes from a report from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. World violence has been heating up since, and world leaders are, frankly, frightened, and they have no solution in mind. The World Tomorrow. The Worldwide Church of God presents Herbert W. Armstrong. Internationally recognized ambassador for world peace. Visiting prominent leaders around the globe. Discussing the cause of world problems. And proclaiming the good news of the world tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, Herbert W. Armstrong. Well, Herbert W. Armstrong certainly has very strong ideas about nuclear policy and how it would affect society in the years after his 1984 broadcast. And he had answers. World leaders are now beginning to wonder, will there even be a day after? Or can nuclear warfare explode so furiously that it can blast all humanity off the face of this earth, every man, woman, and child, on the very first day. And what is the answer? The answer can only be found in one place, and that's a place the world looks to last. That's a place you don't seem to understand, most of you. That is the Holy Bible, the Word of the Living God. Now, this sure word of prophecy in the Bible says that nuclear world war is coming. 
it definitely will come and soon now in our generation. Let me read that to you in a prophecy given by Jesus Christ himself over 1950 years ago. It's in Matthew 24 and verse 21, and this is the greatest prophecy of Jesus Christ written in the New Testament. And in verse 21, Jesus oh, said, So, mostly he had quotes from the Bible, but he could tell you exactly what they meant and how they prophesied the end of the world to come very shortly. Shortly after 1984? Yes. That was nearly 40 years ago. Don't remind me. Now, keep up. He's got a bunch of calculations to make based on his idiosyncratic reading of various unrelated Bible passages penned by totally different authors separated by centuries of time. After World War I and before World War II, we possessed and we owned more than two-thirds and almost three-fourths of all of the cultivatable wealth of the entire world. And all the other nations put together had less than one-third of the wealth of the world. God blessed us. Now we put on the money that he's blessed us with, and God we trust, but we disobey God. And he says our ministers that profess Christ and preach in his name have caused the people to go astray. Some voice has to cry out and warn you people of what's going on and what is coming and what is coming on this nation. But for the elect's sake, those are those in the church, God is going to cut short those days and Christ is going to come and he's going to reign and the saints are going to reign with him. And those that are in his true church and not the false churches that dot the whole United States and Europe, but the true church are going to reign and rule with him. And well, when is he going to tell us the date of the apocalypse? Bad news on that. Turns out, if you watch the whole thing, he ends up revealing that you have to call his 1-800 number and order his book to get the deets. Wow. A TV preacher doing a bait-and-switch for money? How unusual. Don't be cynical, Unicorn. The man is an expert on the end of the world. Previously, for example, according to a popular mechanics article about end-of-the-world predictions, he had prophesied that Jesus would return way back in 1936. Well, with that one. Yes, but he didn't let that stop him. He went on to update his prediction. Two? 1942. But again, that trivial error didn't slow him down. Oh, no? No. He predicted the world's end again in 1972 and 1975. Yeesh. I don't like your tone. Clearly, this book he's hawking was written by one of the most experienced end-of-the-world prophets at work on the soon-to-be-destroyed Earth. So I'm pretty sure the world must have ended back in, like, 87 or something when he predicted it for, like, the fifth or tenth time. It's not like this guy could be wrong. In any case, it's safe to say that predictions of the end times have cropped up periodically, arguably ever since the year 1500 BCE, when Zoroaster, a pioneering monotheist, came up with the idea of competing good and evil forces that would eventually fight an apocalyptic battle to usher in a perfect world of peace and harmony for mankind. As near as historians can tell, and based on the earliest writings we have from Jewish authors, that religion didn't really have a concept of Armageddon or even an afterlife of any kind until just a few hundred years before the birth of Jesus. It's a long, complicated story that he's just itching to tell you over the course of like 45 minutes, but I've hooked up a shock collar to make sure he gets this across to you as quickly as possible. Yeah, about that. This thing is really tight. 
think we could... Ah! Okay, never mind. Here goes. The Zoroastrian religious tradition originated in Persia, that is, modern-day Iran, around 1500 BCE, though written versions of its doctrines date to around 600 BCE. Much like the Jewish traditions that eventually made up the Bible, or for that matter the Greek traditions that eventually comprised the Homeric epics, these were in circulation orally for hundreds of years before they were ever formalized in writing. Oh, okay, okay. In any case, Zoroaster, the guy who came up with this religion, and, by the way, another translation of his name is Zarathustra, the familiar name who also sprock in both the Nietzsche tract and the famous 2001 opening Wagner Symphony. Ow! Jeez! Sorry. Zoroaster was ahead of the curve in a number of ways. Not only was he, as just mentioned, one of the first recorded monotheists, he appears to be the very first one to come up with an apocalyptic eschatology. Oh, I should explain that the concept eschatology refers to ideas about the end of the world. <laughs> Zoroaster slash Zarathustra's big idea was that while there was one good god, there was also an equally or near equally powerful evil god who is in conflict with the good guy, and this explains why so much of human life, especially before the invention of air conditioning, why life is so shitty and so many evil people seem to get away with acting like total dickheads suffering no consequences. See, the good god, Ahura Mazda, is all-knowing, but not all-powerful, meaning he has to struggle against the bad god, Angra Mainyu. Holy shit, this religion has the coolest names for god concepts. Shit! But it turns out eventually the good guy will win in the future in an event called the Frashigurd. Again, just excellent, excellent concept names. God damn it, fuck shit! At which point all living humans and all the dead ones will be resurrected, live again forever in paradise, except for the bad people who are like super fucked, and they will be tortured for either a long time or forever. Okay, I'm done. Can you take this thing off? Thank you. To quote John Michael Greer, whose book we'll get to shortly, this sort of thinking seems very familiar to most people nowadays, and for good reason. Such rhetoric appears in endlessly repeated forms in most modern religions. What makes this repetition fascinating is that in Zarathustra's time, nearly all of these ideas were brand new.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.